Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 0.5 of A Pretty Good Day. Uh, I'm your host, Jared Petty. A Pretty Good Day, part of the uh, Pockets Full of Soup storytelling family. And uh, we launched with our pilot last month, which was really kind of a, a soft lunch to get a feel for what the show ought to become. And I'm continuing to experiment with that, taking a lot of your feedback from last month. If you were a Patreon subscriber, uh, you heard the first episode way early last month, and you sent in a lot of feedback that really helped me decide uh, on what some of what was going to happen in this episode. One of the things that was kind of overwhelmingly clear was that you really enjoyed the single narrated story element of the show, and I think we're going to retain that at least for a while. I do want to branch out and ask other people their stories occasionally. We're going to do that sometimes, but uh, this time around, you're going to get another one of mine because from the feedback, that's what folks wanted. Uh, but additionally, as we prepare for the proper launch of the first uh, full numbered episode of this, uh, this Pockets Full of Soup series, A Pretty Good Day, I'd like to hear about your pretty good days. And you can mail those, as always, to mail at pocketsfullofsoup.com uh, with the heading A Pretty Good Day Story. Once again, mail at pocketsfullofsoup.com the heading, A Pretty Good Day Story. Now, how long should these be? Well, they should be as long as they need to be and no more. Uh, they can be very, very short, and they may be more likely to get read if they're very, very short, but take as long as it takes to tell the story. Uh, also, please clearly indicate in your text that it's okay to read this on the air, that you'd like it to be shared, and uh, let me know if, you know if your name's on there, how much, uh, how much of it you want to be to go out there with it. I'm not going to use all of these, so please don't be hurt if I don't read yours. It's not because your story isn't good uh, or anything like that. It's just that I can only use a limited number of them, and I'm still figuring out what the show is going to be. So, uh, But anything you want to send in, I will be reading, uh, at least on my own, and uh, I promise to pay attention to it and then decide what, uh, what I think is best for the show with it. Uh, by the way, I appreciate the tremendous support and feedback of the audience on, on a pretty good day uh, and our initial episode zero. You guys were really helpful in helping me figure out what needed to happen next. Now, again, we are going to move on and, and ask some people, other people on here. I've, I've got some ideas around that that I'm very excited about because I know people that have some pretty great stories about pretty great days. Um, but today, uh, for this episode, uh, we're going to go through the, the narrative uh, again. And this time I'm going to tell a story from my childhood. Uh, last time I told you a story about a a kind of a mystical, magical day that took place in my life when I was living in Japan. This time around, I want to talk to you about something that happened to me when I was a kid, something that some of you may be able to relate to. Uh, and this is about that formative, wonderful moment in my life where I got that one thing that I really wanted for Christmas. Now, thinking about the, the materialism that's implicit in that statement uh, is, is all kinds of fun. You know, one of our great classic Christmas movies, the one that's uh, run on an endless loop on some channels uh, around uh, the holiday, uh, A Christmas Story by Gene Shepard. It's all the story of a, a little boy who wants a BB gun for Christmas, and most of us have seen it. Most of us uh, understand the strange intersection of sentimentality, family, spirituality, and commercialism that takes place in our hearts and minds around Christmas, especially as children. I mean, this is a holiday about sharing and giving. It's about celebration. It is at its uh, at its core and, and, and its uh, historical origin, a holiday 
that's about celebrating a great spiritual uh, gift and the beginning of a, a life. But when you're a little kid, it's also about Santa Claus bringing you what you want as a reward for your implied goodness. And it's a part of the holiday that I still very much enjoy. I like giving gifts. I really do. I like choosing a careful gift for somebody. I think I'm a pretty good gift giver most of the time. There may be some of you out there with reason to feel otherwise, uh, and you were just polite uh, and didn't tell me my gift was was awful. But um, for the most part, I love giving gifts. And yes, I do like receiving them. I'm not one of those adults that got to the place where I'm like, well, I don't want any more for Christmas. No, there's always something I want. There's always a book. There's always a game. Uh, there's always a sentimental object or a little piece of history. There's always an experience that, that I want to have. I haven't quite gotten tired of new things yet. And so uh, the that that avarice is alive and well, that Christmas time desire. But when I was a kid, uh, growing up in the 1980s, um, there was one singular object, one one relic, one magical device, one one piece of culture that I simply wanted to be a part of my life more than anything else in the entire world. And there was a time that I finally got it. And that device, that uh, that magical talismanic object, uh, was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, for those of you that know me from my day job, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that at all. Uh, and for those of you that were around uh, during the mid to late 1980s, uh, I think that your appreciation for just how saturated in child culture Nintendo Mania was uh, will, will, will probably mirror uh, some of my own experience in this matter. Those of you that are part of the Kind of Funny community, uh, many of you uh, come out of, of that period of time or afterward, and you're familiar with it from friends at Kind of Funny and their stories or for your own lives. But for me, Nintendo Mania uh, began pretty early on. I'd heard of Nintendo. Now, first off, I was a weird kid. I imagine that. I'm kind of a weird dude, and I was a really weird kid. And my earliest memories are tied in in more than one case to video games. I remember as a very small child uh, looking with longing at the Atari VCS, the Atari 2600 computer systems, uh, the home console uh, the, with the ubiquitous joystick, the black joystick with the big orange fire button, you know that one. Looking at those as a very small child, probably no more than two or three. And one of my very earliest memories is at about three years old being picked up by my dad so that I could play Pac-Man on an arcade machine. and the incredible feeling that I got as I began to understand that I was taking control of that little yellow orb and that I figured out what I was supposed to do, eat the dots and avoid the ghosts and and the glow of that CRT screen over my face and the feel of that control in my hand. There was something almost, not even almost, there was something spiritual and existential and wonderful about it that captivated me from my youngest age. And when I was a very small child, I was ridiculously aware, considering my context of that world. When I was three, I got an Atari 2600 from my parents uh, for Christmas. When I was five, I got a uh, computer, uh, a, a terrible computer, the Coleco Atom, uh, which seemed like a really great idea at the time to my folks and turned out not to be as uh, Coleco folded soon afterward in the great Cabbage Patch Kids surplus debacle. 
Uh, the Atom was a combination of a ColecoVision and a legitimate home computer with a pretty spiffy built-in word processor. And at the time, that was a big deal. And had it been better designed and better marketed, it might very well have, have made a significant impact on the home. But as it was, it uh, lost out to the Commodore 64 and the emergence of the IBM PC. Well, anyway, these were all steps down the road. I would read uh, newspaper circulars. You know, they used to used to get the Sunday paper and it was full of ads for things and games. And I'd go to the Sears wish books and look through the game sections and those and circle the ones I wanted. But... While we were certainly not a family living in poverty, we were a family living on an extraordinarily tight budget um, in the second half of the 1980s. Uh, my father was a minister of a very small church in Washington, D.C. He also worked two other jobs at the same time. And as a kid, I didn't realize there was anything odd about having a dad that worked three jobs. Uh, didn't understand that he was just desperately trying to make ends meet in an extraordinarily expensive uh, area. He was also going to grad school at the same time. He was a busy dude. And I didn't really get that as Nintendo mania came crashing down, that uh, we were not exactly in the best position uh, to spend what was at the time a significant amount of money on what my parents regarded as a toy. Well, it was a toy. I mean, adults enjoyed the NES, but it was largely designed and marketed toward children at that point. It was a, a tool for discovery with a robot friend. It was an entertainment system. It was designed to look like a VCR, but it was for kids. Those were kid-sized controllers and kid-marketed games and... It was there to to appeal to that sense of possibility and wonder. I I became aware of Nintendo through Donkey Kong. I think that's where I first saw the word uh, in the arcade machine and on the cartridges for my uh, uh, my home gaming console, the twenty six hundred, with Gary Kitchen's uh, uh, port that he did, which uh, some folks are critical of, but the fact is, is a feat of incredible engineering. Uh, considering the 2600 should not be able to do most of the things that are going on in that cartridge. Anyway, um, I knew Nintendo. I even knew Mario, uh, the little, at that time, Carpenter. I knew him from uh, Donkey Kong. I knew him from Donkey Kong Jr. as the, the mean guy up there with the, with the whip. And I knew him from, uh, knew him later from Mario Brothers. But when my birthday rolled around, uh, right there in the mid-80s, probably January of 1986, this is my guess, I go to my birthday party, and there is a Nintendo Versus cabinet standing there. Now, I haven't seen Nintendo Versus cabinets before. Uh, they uh, were part of the NES rollout here in the States. They were arcade cabinets with Nintendo entertainment system games built into them are very similar versions of NES games. Things like Duck Hunt went into them, for example. Uh, and uh, I also saw a Nintendo VS uh, with the Goonies there, a game that never actually came to the United States. But the one that grabbed me most was a game called Super Mario Brothers. Now, the thing about Super Mario Brothers that you might not get if you weren't there was, was like I've said this uh, before on uh, in my day job, that Super Mario Brothers was like something that came down from outer space. When you experienced that game, having experienced the home and arcade games that had come before, there was simply no 
comparison. I had played Pac-Land. I had seen worlds that scrolled and were interesting or cartoony, but you couldn't get very far And I mean, through the extraordinary difficulty and kind of awkwardness of the design. And I'd even become familiar with computer RPGs early on and knew about big worlds with lots of secrets. But Super Mario Brothers transcended. It was so instantly identifiable. You knew what you were supposed to do from the very beginning. Everything you experimented with seemed to work. Crouch on a pipe, sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes it did. Hit a block with your head. Sometimes a coin came out, but sometimes a flower that let you shoot fireballs or a jump in an area where you think there's nothing. You hit an invisible block and extra life pops out. You hit something else with your head, an ordinary looking brick, and suddenly there's a, there's a vine going up. You climb it and there's a heaven full of coins go down underground and the music changes. There's an echo to everything and you can find a hidden world and on and on and on. And when you ran to the right, the world just kept going. There was more and more and more outdoor areas and deep, dark caverns and fierce fortresses and forests and magical treetops and coin heavens and undersea areas. It was world building. It was a place you could never go that someone had made. It was like reading a marvelous book. And oh, I loved books. Somebody had created a story, a narrative fantasy, and drawn me into it. I burned through all my birthday tokens on that machine. I was terrible, I was awful, but I kept getting a little farther and a little farther and a little farther. And lo and behold, I leave that arcade and I'm in love. Super Mario Brothers is my favorite thing in the universe when I walk out those doors that night. And soon after, very soon after, ba-bam, lo and behold, there it is on my television, an indistinguishable home version of an arcade game. Again, an unthinkable idea in the mid-1980s right there on a TV commercial for the Nintendo Entertainment System, ready to take home. I was in love. And thus began a long period of asking for something that I was not going to get for a long, long time. Because economically, it wasn't easy for my family. And priority-wise, it wasn't feasible. Before we had... Uh, before we had uh, moved to D.C. and taken that difficult job, my parents were convinced a computer was going to be good for me, and they bought one at, at a kind of a cut rate. The computer company that, that uh, supported that computer soon folded, but my folks didn't seem to be really aware of that, despite my efforts to convince them. And the result was that I had a home computer, and I should certainly, you know, from their perspective, be happy with that. That's far better than a gaming system. What matter that it didn't have Super Mario Brothers on it? As a matter of fact, it probably did, they told me. I just didn't know where to find it. We'd go looking for it. That narrative continued for a long time and through a lot of arguments. And there's a lot of spoiled little uh, kid stuff in here that uh, that I don't want, to, that I'm not proud of, frankly. My folks were working their tails off just to make ends meet every Christmas. That was at the top of my list. Now, I was a greedy kid, so I also wanted other stuff, too. Um, but every Christmas, that was what I wanted. And every Christmas, uh, for a while, there was a tinge of disappointment at the end. Now, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. The fact is, is that my folks provided for me ex with extraordinary generosity. They really did. 
they found ways to make it happen. So did my grandparents and relatives. And I never wanted for anything I really needed, nor did I want for affection, nor did I want for experience. I had parents that went to my baseball games and took me to museums and checked my homework and cared about what I cared about. But on this one topic of video games, they just didn't seem to quite comprehend where the mania was coming from. And I think that uh, probably, if I'm being honest with myself, probably just thought it was going to pass by eventually. Or maybe they thought there wasn't a lot of uh, future in it. Ha <laughs> ha, showed them. And that leads to the really good day. Because in the late 1980s, um, my family moved from Washington, D.C. to North Carolina. And our economic situation changed significantly. My father's new job and my mother's new jobs were much, much better than what they'd had before. And suddenly, for the first time really in my childhood, money was not a crushing worry every day of the week. I mean, it's not like we had a lot, but we had more than nothing, which is, I think, what we'd had for a long time. And uh, that Christmas, there weren't the usual disavowals of, oh, well, I know you want that, but I don't know. That's awfully expensive. Or don't you want something else? Or, you know, it would probably be the only thing you got. Are you sure? That year, there was less and less of that. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first, the, the improved economic situation. Second, the fact that I think I'd finally worn them down through years of not changing. If anything, my Nintendo mania grew. I read video game magazines for games that I couldn't own. I made friends with people soullessly just so I could go over and touch their Nintendo controller for a few minutes and play player two alongside them. I went to birthday parties for people I didn't like so that I could have a shot at five minutes in Nintendo. I went to the school spring fling and instead of going to all the gaming game booths and events and buying the prizes. I just went over and played the Nintendo they had over in the corner for three hours. I had a mania. I drew Nintendo games in the back of my school papers. I drew Nintendo characters in my notebooks. I designed video games in three ring binders and on graph paper. At this point, I had fallen into a, a love of tabletop role-playing and friends would play Dungeons and Dragons or, uh, uh, Palladium Books, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I designed a Zelda game. Again, I didn't have Zelda. I just designed it around my knowledge of reading the manuals and the maps and the Nintendo Power and borrowing things from friends and photocopying instructions so I could read them and memorize them by heart. So I think my folks kind of understood it wasn't going to go away. Uh, and I think that they really wanted to give me what they knew I wanted because they were sweet, kind people as they remain to this day. And so, um, as uh, Christmas started to roll up, I began to wonder if this might be the year. I think the third reason, though, that my folks decided that it was the year for the Nintendo is that moving for a child can be a pretty rough thing. We talk a lot on Pockets Full of Soup and A Pretty Good Day about the positivity of life, about the more positive aspects of who we are. But part of recognizing positivity is understanding the reality of negativity. 
pain, suffering, loss, grieving, death, sickness. These things are real, awful, and all of us will be touched by them at some point in our lives. For me, moving from Washington, D.C. to rural North Carolina as a uh, pretty young kid, at a time in my life when I was about to enter into uh, the magical world of, of puberty and all the horror that entails, combined with leaving behind every friend I ever remembered having, a school that I loved, a community that I knew, a neighborhood that I thought was the most wonderful place there could ever possibly be, to, a place where you could walk to almost anything and ride the train to the rest. To go from that to a very rural, forested, at that time, educationally very backwards uh, area, where I didn't know anyone, and I was the kid with the weird, whiny Yankee accent in the rough-and-tumble, fist-fighty elementary school that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced, where angry kids and angry old teachers uh, uh, seemed uh, just as okay with, uh, with a little pummeling as with, uh, with a little uh, uh, talking. It was a difficult transition, and Hickory, North Carolina became one of my favorite places in the world. Some of that's that I changed, and some of it's that it changed. Uh, uh, during the time I lived there, it transformed from a very uh, rural uh, conservative farming community into a tremendously economically uh, progressive and prosperous place. Uh, that's changed again, uh, unfortunately, as uh, as the horror of uh, of economics has moved on. But when I was there, uh, just after I moved there, it went from being a center of furniture and textile manufacturing to also becoming a fiber optic and, and tech center and uh, it really creating some spectacular jobs for people for a time. Brought a lot of economic prosperity, a lot of people moving into the area for work. Folks uh, actually were able to make a living for a while there. And the schools improved with uh, with a more a progressive state government with new ideas, things became better. Um, but when I first got there, it wasn't great. There were holes in the walls of my school building. I don't remember many days where you didn't see a fist fight or a scuffle. Uh, folks were oh, just, just angry. I never really understood the anger. I hadn't experienced it all that much before. But and I was miserable. You know, again, when you're a child, it seems it seems small and trite to us. But you got to remember, when you're there, man, whatever age you are, your whole universe is what you know and what you've experienced. And that adds a tremendous amount of gravity and reality to your problems. I don't like to laugh at teenagers for their melodrama because, yeah, it seems silly from the outside that they're so upset about what seems to us such a small thing. But when you are there, when you are them, that is your whole world. It's all you know. And those deals which seem contextually far less striking, far less demanding than the adult responsibilities that we have to deal with day in and day out, when you're there in the middle of it, it feels and seems completely different. It is completely different. It's your world. And the same for a child that moves to a new area. And between fighting with bullies and terrible homesickness, uh, and then my dog getting run over um, just after moving, and uh, you know a few other pretty sad things, I think my folks were ready to cheer me up. So Christmas rolled around, 
and Christmas morning in my house, man. Let's get to that pretty good day. Christmas morning in my house in Carolina was a good, good day. My living room was curious. Uh, the way it was designed, there was a door that led into my living room that could be closed. I don't think most living rooms have closable doors, but in my house it did. So you set the tree up in there, and my dad, uh, you know, we'd have the tree fight every year. We'd have to fight about whether it was going to be colored lights or white lights. And then when we had the color white versus light light fight, then we'd fight about where the ornaments went on the tree and what they were going to look like. And then you had to put the train village up under the tree. Now, my father had an HO scale train layout that was designed to be built under a tree, just just full of buildings. It had, it had grown from a half a dozen little, I don't know, uh, ornament shop houses and a couple of hobby store HO people in a little train station and a single circular track over the years and through my childhood into a sprawling metropolis that honestly took up about a quarter of the living room, stretched well out from beyond uh, under the tree. It took a couple of days to put the whole thing together every year, another couple of days to take it apart. But it was something that we as the kids loved. And at the time, I think my father loved as well. So you had the big tree. We were big fake tree people, and we had our big fake tree, and we generally went with the tacky colored lights, which I love to this day. And under that, the big, ostentatious train village. And because my dad worked as a clergyman, we were right next to the church, he was almost always working on Christmas Eve till very, very late. And so the night before, we'd all been up well past midnight uh, helping with that and getting back to the house late and doing the last minute wrapping. And generally speaking, uh, got to bed real late, got up real early. There hadn't been a lot of time for Santa to, to come in the night. We get the presents stacked in there a few beforehand. But most of the presents, those from my parents, those from my grandparents, those from Santa, those all showed up you know, overnight later on. But the door was closed. And so my brother and I would run downstairs and the door was closed. And we weren't supposed to open the door till everybody was there. So my mom and dad would stumble out of bed at six when we pounded on their door to wake them up. And my grandparents would stumble out of their guest room bed and come wandering over. And we'd all kind of huddle outside the door and wait for everybody, all the slow adults, to get down in the bathroom. And then my mother would go around the corner of the kitchen and start coffee, and we'd all stand there for what seemed like 30 years and was probably no more than 10 minutes. My mom would put the Christmas music on the record player in the living room on the other side of the door. We'd hear it start. And she'd always put a microphone and a tape on. She audio recorded our Christmases until we got a video camera. Then she video recorded them. She'd get the Polaroid out and she'd have the coffee and everything would be set up and settled. And then finally the door would open. We'd run in and there would be the presents heaped, heaped like, oh, I don't know. Was it C.S. Lewis? Like the said, like skulls around, uh, around the thrones of conquerors. Um, that might've been Lewis heaps of presents everywhere. And there they were, you know, there'd be invariably, I think the Christmas music was either something from Hallmark or Evie singing, come on, ring those bells and go there in the living room. But we did not dive immediately in. Oh, no, we were not churls. We were sophisticates. Someone must play Santa. Um, uh, that was a designated person among us. It changed every year. This year, I was not Santa. I was looking around for a box of a certain shape and size, and I was feeling a sense of panic because I did not see that box. My brother opened his present, uh, his big present first. He jumped right into the first one. He was playing Santa, 
uh, but he felt the uh, the need to liberate himself of his gift first, and uh, so he delivered to himself. Uh, it was a pretty neat gift. It was this kind of awesome large train set of its own that he might still have. I believe that that was it that year, that train set. Then he handed a couple of things to people, and then I got a box that had that feel of clothes. You know the clothes box when you're a kid? It's Christmas, and somebody hands you the clothes box, and you know it. You can feel it from the the thinness of the of the cardboard and the fact that it bends on the sides, and there's a softness. And you know that weight, and you can kind of hear the tissue paper, and you're like, I'm getting clothes. I don't care what's in this box. But you still have to open it, one, because you have to be polite, and two, because there might be something good hidden inside with the clothes. Well, I opened up that box and inside were a pair of glow-in-the-dark Nintendo pajamas with Mario on them. Okay, first off, glow-in-the-dark anything is good. And second, Nintendo pajamas. Frankly, if I could find a pair that fit me today, I would probably wear them. But I looked over at my parents and I remember distinctly my mother saying to me, Oh, well, we knew you wanted Nintendo, so we did the best we could. My mother is a cruel woman sometimes. Perhaps this was payback for years of begging and obnoxiousness and ungrateful childhood and whining and mischief and all the other horrors that go with being a kid. But I must confess, I was a bit stung by the callousness of her, uh, of her gift there and the hidden meaning behind it. And I looked over at my mom and dad and my grandparents, and I smiled because there were still other presents, and they weren't all going to be closed, and if I didn't behave myself, I might not get to unwrap the rest of them. So my brother continued his uh, his path as uh, Santa, handing out the various, you know, jars of aftershave to my father, and the handkerchiefs to my grandfather, and the sweaters to my mother, and to my grandmother, whatever it is you give grandmothers, I can never remember anymore. Every year I buy a Christmas present for my grandmother, and every year I try to remember the year before what it was. I always think very hard about it. But grandmothers, I don't know what they want. Grandmothers are a strange breed. I don't understand their desires. I'm very appreciative for them, and I love that they exist in the world, but so often they seem to exist to give, and when you give back to them, you just kind of feel, well, lame in the effort, or at least that's been my experience. And then my brother went over to a concealed box that he had spotted that was pretty much as large as he was. And trying to lift it, I saw that it was heavy. And I knew those dimensions. Those dimensions were burned into my brain. A mathematical formula, a geometric mania, a blueprint an AutoCAD readout of happiness. I know the shape of that box. I couldn't see through the wrapping paper. But I knew every inch, length, width, and depth of that. I knew not just what it portended. I knew the set. I knew what would be inside. I knew what packings would and would not be included. I knew what peripherals would be within. And I did not wait for my brother. I leapt forward. I leapt forward like a hungry cannibal at the smell of roasted person. I leapt forward 
like a starving man surrounded by delicious pizza sauce diving into a vat. These are poor metaphors, but I ran forward. And I dived down on both knees, and I ripped, and there it was. The talismanic, the magical, the wonderful, the best Christmas present anyone could ever get. The Nintendo Entertainment System. The realization of years of hopes and dreams and desires. I ripped the packaging off, and I realized that my mother had positioned herself covertly with her Polaroid and was snapping away, and I did not care. I did not pose. I reached in, and I lifted the box over my head, and I looked up to the heavens, and I cried out with joy. I have Nintendo. You know this, uh, or you can prove this, because I still have the audio tape of that happening, or my mom does, and I've listened to it a couple of times. I screamed like a wailing banshee with joy. I held it above my head. I shook. I felt its gravity. I felt its greatness. You know, I, the games we play, they matter to us. The toys we have, the movies we watch, the poems we read, the food we eat the lovers whose hands we caress. Those aren't possessions, those are people, you know what I mean. Things and people and places and memories that are precious to us. The ones that we care deeply for. The ones sometimes that care deeply for us. There's a gravity to those moments, to those memories of a kiss, of a touch, a taste or the scent of something on the wind. And uh, for me, it's weird. The touch of that heavy cardboard in my hands that morning, I don't think I'll ever forget quite what that was like. It felt good. It felt just... It felt like happiness. The rest of the day, honestly, was better, I think, than that moment. There was the traditional, our household breakfast of my mom's tremendous fruit salad and uh, her delightful sausage balls, which are, you know, many people don't like sausage balls. That's because they haven't had my mom's. People make them too wet or they make them too dry. My mom has got that formula down perfectly. And then after that, the uh, ham and turkey dinner, because my grandfather didn't like turkey and my mom hated having grown up on ham. But really... Christmas was, from then on, the, 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 it was just about getting into that room and getting that thing hooked up to the TV above where my computer was there in that little home office and spending every waking second until deep into the night when my eyes were closing themselves, playing through those wonderful levels, hearing those marvelous musical themes resound, reverberate. Uh, in my mind, in my ears, feeling the tactile f just pop of those buttons in my hands. And exploring that world, feeling my skill grow, getting better and better and better. Waiting for my uh, dad to put the thing together. Waiting for, you know, going from 
not being able to wait to see what present came next, the digging through my stocking and throwing everything out immediately and unwrapping it as fast as possible because I didn't care. There was only one thing to do, wolfing my food down and hopping back, resenting any moment I was called away for the least less important task that I could possibly be pulled toward having to go out that evening with friends and for a couple of hours and how those couple of hours felt like a couple of days because my mind was back in that little room just waiting to hit that power button. It's very rare in life that we get exactly what we want and that what we want turns out to be everything we want. That day in a very strange way, I think was a defining one in my life. It's one of the best days I've ever had. It troubles me always that that's because I received something material, an object, a gift, that it's about desire for some commercial inanimate thing. But to me, it wasn't commercial and inanimate in my heart. And for that matter, it still isn't. It represented magic. It represented a greater possibility in life. It represented days more worth living because I could journey other places that were impossible and travel through the imaginations of brilliant inventors who I'd never met, but who had shared their dream of what the universe could be with me through a little piece of silicon and a few electrons pushed onto a TV screen. It was pretty wonderful. It's a pretty good day. Day I opened that box. So yeah, uh, that's my story for this week. Once again, we'd love to hear yours. I'm suspecting it'll be next month that we do kind of the proper launch of this. Um, although that'll be Christmas, so we might wait till January. But you'll definitely still be getting episodes as we warm up and learn more. Once again, mail at pocketsfullofsoup.com to tell us stories of your own pretty good days. Thank you for indulging me in this. Um, I don't talk much about that uh, day job part of my life on this show, and I'm not likely to uh, uh, beyond now, but... Uh, I wanted to talk about that one pretty good day because it was pretty spectacular. And uh, thank you so very much for listening, for supporting the show. Uh, and until next time, bye-bye.